Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. And I'm Leah Kaufman. In today's podcast, we'll hear again from Dr. Alan Russell, director of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Russell was our first guest on Regenerative Medicine Today just over one year ago. In this podcast, he'll update us on the state of the field. Let's hear Leah's interview with Dr. Russell now. Last year, we kicked off this podcast series with a visit from Dr. Alan Russell, the director of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. And one year later, nearly to the date, Dr. Russell is joining us again. And I hope that he'll give us a good overview of the state of the field of regenerative medicine. So why don't we start there, actually, Dr. Russell. Um, What's going on with the field of regenerative medicine these days? Well, it's a a very exciting time for regenerative medicine. There was a fellow called Gartner who, a long time ago, uh, developed a curve called the hype versus value curve for all technologies, which basically showed that when you take many advanced technologies, over the first 10 years, there's a lot of hype. Over the next five years, there's a great deal of failure. And then gradually, you go into the second generation of products and materials that really provide value. Uh, to consumers, and of course the consumers of regenerative medicine are sick people. So the idea of being able to deliver therapies to people with debilitating disease uh, is an exciting driving force behind much of what we do. And uh, the last few years really have seen the emergence, the re-emergence of a field from a time that was dominated by hype to a time that was dominated by lack of delivery on the hype, to now a time where really actually things are beginning to move very fast, very exciting things are happening. So I hear you saying that the field has come through its difficult adolescence of uh, um, slamming its doors and playing lots of loud music with very little to show for it. And the field is now producing um, marketable and clinically relevant treatments. Um, and I think we've probably heard that message from some of our previous guests. Can you describe a couple of those treatments that you know are, are sort of on the cusp right now? Well, I think one of the most interesting stories would just be to describe the, the hype, uh, the problems, and now the productivity of one product, for instance, just as an example. Uh, which is one that I'm not associated with, but but know and love well, and that's the Organogenesis product. Organogenesis was a company from the Boston area that was really one of the two front runners of developing uh, a product. And their focus, they had a broad focus originally, a very broad focus, but one of their key products that they took all the way to the clinic was a living skin equivalent. So the idea of taking cells, skin cells, seeding them on a material, and then using that cultured material to replace the skin. For uh, burns or for, large wounds? For, or... for diabetic ulcer healing mm-hmm. and for wounds of, of different types uh, and, and donor sites, uh, wherever it would be appropriately and safely approved for use. So the company went through enormous growth during the what you might call the hype cycle. Uh, they were actually quite cautious. I mean, I don't think they were hypers uh, in any sense of the word. They really... They weren't uh, selling vaporware. They yeah, had an you actual know, they, product. They made a product and uh, grew the company into a very large entity. But they were focused on many different things as well as just skin. And as times got tougher and as the they realized that the development of the market of that product was very much dependent on the FDA and very much dependent on reimbursement issues, 
um, uh, they began to struggle as a company and uh, four or five years ago uh, had to file Chapter 11 bankruptcy uh, along with the other huge company in the field at that time, Advanced Tissue Sciences, who also in the same year uh, filed for Chapter 11. And that period was a, perhaps a dark period for the field when the two biggest driving forces uh, filed and many people that were investors, many governments that were investing heavily sort of asked the question, well, gosh, what, what happens now? Well, the good news is, is that coming out of bankruptcy, Organogenesis uh, is leaner and meaner than it was before, and I believe the market this year for their product, Aplograph, is on the order of $50 million a year, and it seems to be uh, turning itself into a success. So that's just one story of one product. There are many others. Uh, that's a classic tissue engineering product that uses cells and materials. Another way to get the body to regenerate and to heal itself, a regenerative medicine product, is to use biodegradable materials with small molecules that tell the body how to heal itself. So another story that we might talk about is the story of the Medtronic uh, infused device. Uh, this is a spine fusion device which uses a collagen-based material seeded with something called BMP, which just tells the body to make bone and it gradually replaces the collagen with bone and uh, hopefully fuses the spine. Uh, this product has been through many different uh, iterations. Uh, I believe that this year uh, Medtronic uh, will have a market on the order of $500 million a year for that product alone. Wow. Uh, so I think uh, it's a very exciting time, and, and I could have picked any one of a number of different stories, but, but those stories I think serve to illustrate that, yeah, products now uh, are getting into patients uh, in a much grander scale than they were before. Just as these companies are reinventing themselves and finding um, more efficient and better ways of achieving their end goal, has the, the commitment from governments and other investors, have they become rededicated, recommitted to the field as well? Yes, I think, I think in some cases they never left. Mm -hmm. um, so whilst they, there was much gnashing of teeth, um, the gnashing of teeth was just gnashing of teeth rather than putting the wallets away. Uh, and some countries had never actually really strategically invested at all. So if you look around the world, probably the, the Japanese uh, system invested the, the most early on in the field and, and really did the field a great service and, and stood by the field during those difficult years and now is reaping the rewards in a series of very exciting clinical projects that are going on in Japan. Uh, in Europe, uh, they've not just decided to invest heavily, but they're also looking at the whole regulatory pathway and demonstrating a real willingness to completely redesign the way that they regulate these products, which is a great, great benefit uh, for work in Europe. It's going to present a challenge to companies who will have to regulate products under one paradigm in Europe and under a different paradigm in the rest of the world. Uh, but, but it's wonderful to see that they're actually saying, you know what, this is a different class of products. It works completely differently than other products. We really need a, a new regulatory, regulatory mechanism in order to, to work with it. And the European government, uh, uh, individual European governments are investing heavily and strategically particularly in Germany, for instance, where they're, they're putting a huge amount of resource into the field in very targeted strategic ways. 
And then the EU community is investing heavily. Back here at home in, in America, uh, the, the investment has been substantial but not strategic until mm -hmm. recently. So, uh, but, but within the last few years, both in the Department of Defense and at DARPA and uh, now most recently at NIH and NSF and NIST, so commerce and the science and the health funders, uh, have really put together large strategic uh, vehicles through which they can invest. And if you add up all of the government funding around the world that's gone into this field, it's a big, big number. I, I recently saw from a colleague uh, at Proteus Ventures down in California that the number was around $14 billion, with a B, $14 billion. So there's a, a lot of government investment that has gone into this for very good reason. You know, they, they need to find ways to to cure diseases rather than treat symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering about what you said about Europe examining its regulatory process. Is that process better, and can we hope that perhaps it will seep into our own US FDA process of examining these products? This is a very difficult question, and a, it's a very controversial question, because you know, it's very, very difficult to recommend one system over another system when, when they're so different from each other. I, I do believe that cell-based products and the means by which one could demonstrate that they are safe and that they work more effectively than any other kind of product are substantially different than either devices or plain biologic materials or drugs. Mm -hmm. And that when the regulatory mechanisms were designed to, to ensure the safety of the public for devices, biologics, and drugs, these kinds of products, so-called combination products in many cases, were not envisaged. People weren't thinking about them. So perhaps it's not surprising that the three existing mechanisms are really not ideal. They, they don't necessarily make this any easier. Um, the, the rules of the game are still quite straightforward, so uh, it's just that perhaps they're the wrong rules. Mm -hmm. With a given set of rules, you can, you, know, you can play the game and obey by the rules and, and end up with a successful product. But if the rules were more customized, you might end up with a much more exciting game. Mm -hmm. So I do think that the FDA eventually will develop, as these products emerge, will develop its own... Uh, customized mechanism that perhaps may follow in Europe's lead. Uh, the challenge is that there simply isn't enough density of products challenging the system at this time that will require that kind of attention. Right. Interesting. It's so it's almost as if they could be nimble enough to sort of um, grow another arm to consider this new class. Um, the, the pun is excused. <laughs> I I want to step back to the federal investment. You mentioned groups like DARPA. Mm -hmm. um, I know that McGowan is involved in a new program that examines the possibility of helping soldiers wounded in combat. Mm -hmm. Can you describe that in a little more detail? Well, there, there are a couple of different programs where we're working with the Department of Defense, and it's certainly a very exciting uh, prospect. Uh, they go all the way from fundamental programs, uh, very aggressive fundamental programs, to clinical programs, and they're funded through different vehicles. Uh, DARPA, uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, has a history, a long history, 
of taking immense technical risk and delivering immense rewards uh, as a result of taking that risk. Of course, every now and again, uh, it doesn't work out. Uh, but you know, the DARPA is quite well known for things like developing the early internet, uh, etc., etc. So one of the most bold and bodacious ideas is that perhaps you might be able to regenerate limbs sometime in the future. If a, if a salamander can do it, perhaps we can too. And uh, DARPA has indeed funded a large program that's coordinated. It's a, a program of multiple investigators from multiple institutions, coordinated by Dr. Stephen Badalak here at the University of Pittsburgh. And he leads that team in trying to design the tool sets that will enable uh, limb, real limb regeneration. Now, obviously, at, at this time, it's, it's a very fundamental program, although DARPA's goals are, are, are lofty, and, uh, and they're willing to put uh, enough resources into the program that they may well achieve, the team may, may well achieve those lofty goals. Uh, but no one's saying that we're going to regrow an arm within 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, uh, on, on the flip side, there are things that regenerative medicine can do today to help soldiers that are coming back from the war and that are injured in combat. And as you may have heard, the, the survival rate of soldiers in the war is, is much higher than in the past, which means that many soldiers are coming back with extremely traumatic injury. And for a long time, for five or six years, uh, we at McGowan have developed a close partnership and relationship uh, with the Institute for Surgical Research, which is uh, the, the component of the army that is responsible for research uh, on, for trauma mm -hmm. uh, to soldiers. And in a variety of programs that began five or six years ago, we have developed a suite of technologies that we believe are now ready uh, for trial and together with the army, uh, with funding from the Congress, we're moving forward and uh, hopefully this year we'll, we'll engage in uh, two or even three uh, clinical trials to begin to test uh, some of these materials. What, I, can you hint at what one or two of those might do to help those soldiers? Well, uh, so, soldiers have traumatic injuries so they, they have lost uh, bone, they've lost uh, muscle, they've lost skin. Um, uh, you know, I think one can imagine quite easily the kinds of injuries that they have. Uh, what regenerative medicine essentially does is try to figure out a way to rebuild tissue. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we are, what we will do with the army is is try uh, innovative techniques to rebuild tissue that can't currently be re replaced. Based on the toolkit we have now. Correct. So these are things that can help people sooner. Rather Correct. than going back to the basic science level as you are with uh, the notion of limb regeneration. Correct. Okay. But, but we do have a, a suite of programs still mm -hmm. with the Army. Mm -hmm. So there is a pipeline that goes all the way from what you might call basic research to more applied research to de developmental projects and, and now, excitingly, at the far end, clinical mm -hmm. uh, projects. And I want to just remind our listeners that I imagine, you can correct me if I'm wrong, of course, that you're talking about a range, the whole full spectrum of regenerative medicine possibilities from cell-based treatments to scaffolds mm -hmm. to, and our, I think our listeners by now know what these words mm -hmm. mean, um, to things that may even, you know, may not 
necessarily restore function to a lost limb, but can make that wound heal faster and mm-hmm. get somebody into a prosthesis faster and yeah. and uh, grasping uh, or walking faster. Yeah, so. absolutely. So we, you know, uh, I consider regenerative medicine products to be the class of products that accelerate the body's capacity to heal itself more effectively mm-hmm. um, with better form and better function. So those products that can do that can come from a, from a variety of different technological bases, mm-hmm. uh, from devices, machines, uh, from cell-based products, and as you say, from scaffolds and materials, and combinations of any two or any three of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the goal is to restore form and function of damaged or diseased tissue. And, and we here at the McGowan Institute are most interested in understanding the tools that mm-hmm. we can use to induce that kind of behavior in the body. From whichever field they're from. doesn't matter. Yeah, you're yeah. not biased, wherever, as wherever I understand it. it. From, <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we have, uh, with 200 faculty, you can tell that we're mm-hmm. not focused on any one of those. Uh, we, we, we really believe that if we were to focus on one, it would likely be at the expense of another. And therefore, the goal is to unite people across disciplines uh, people that share a common goal become at it from different pathways. And we believe that if, as long as we continue to build, all, all the roads lead to Rome. So, mm-hmm. so regenerative medicine is Rome. And mm-hmm. we don't care what the road is. Uh, we just want to build the roads. We've been hearing about this relatively new paradigm in scientific discovery and in the creation of new treatments where many disciplines come together. It's not multidisciplinary. It's truly interdisciplinary. Um, and it sounds to me... When you talk about many of the institutes at the NIH beginning to get on board, that they're beginning to think that way as well. It, did, did the did the notion move up that way, or did, was it top down from the from the granting agencies and whatnot? Well, I think that uh, I think in general. So, so let's just make sure that that, that your listeners understand <laughs> this nuance between multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary because they sound awfully similar. Yes. Um, so the government has announced that there's a difference. I don't know that the scientific community fully agrees or understands that there's a difference, but the government says that something is multidisciplinary, and by the government I mean NIH. They've said that multidisciplinary means that if you take lots of different disciplines and get them to work on a project together for a period of time, and then after that project is complete, those disciplines go back to their own work. That's called multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Something's interdisciplinary if they all come together and create a new discipline, mm-hmm. a fusion, mm-hmm. of, uh, a permanent fusion. They call that interdisciplinary. Personally, I think that's somewhat semantics. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, and as long as you deliver something of value to patients, it, mm-hmm. it really doesn't matter. Uh, regenerative medicine today, or, or at least in the past, was probably more multidisciplinary. So in other words, lots of people started working together to try and develop these very cool kinds of products. Tomorrow, and probably starting just a few years ago, the field did really begin to develop its own ethos, its own way of, of, of doing things, and has begun to come together in a way that it really hadn't a few years ago. So in the past, the field was uh, a number of different fiefdoms, and, and perhaps now there's a real union between those, and, and it's moving forward as a field. Uh, as that happens, it will become more interdisciplinary, and once it, it's a recognized discipline in and of itself, it'll be much easier for government 
to target it. Uh, has you know does does NIH understand that? I, I think uh, as with all interdisciplinary projects, they are best started from the bottom, and then to some extent funded from the top. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the, the ground, the, the workers in regenerative medicine have figured this out, have indeed come together, are talking about very important challenges in the field, and are really creating the field itself. Mm -hmm. And certainly government at, at higher levels has noticed that there's been a shift, and, and therefore I think is responding to that. We sort of heard this story learning about bioengineering and its emergence um, and it's interesting because that's such an important component of regenerative medicine. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that that segment has realized that and that perhaps now the whole field of regenerative medicine will. As long as we're talking about the state of the field, let's talk about the state of the states. Um, we've seen the, uh, the embryonic stem cell debate um, brought up a lot in recent elections. Um, how are they feeling about funding this field, which can often be contentious? Well, I think um, the different state... You know, first of all, the, the good thing is that when everyone's talking about embryonic stem cells, it provides an opportunity for us to talk about regenerative medicine mm -hmm. to people who we normally wouldn't get to talk about regenerative medicine to. So it's not, you know, uh, the fact that governors and presidents want to talk to their constituents uh, on primetime prime TV about this topic, uh, even though it's contentious, opens doors to discussions that are less contentious. Uh, clearly, the states are engaging in a sort of uh, somewhat of a pitched battle now to figure out who will dominate this field. As everybody realizes that the business of tissue engineering and regenerative medicine is coming back, that will create opportunities of the billions of dollars a year scale. That will mean jobs in research. It will mean small numbers of jobs in high-tech manufacturing industries, which are very valued. So it's not surprising that uh, states that have an agenda that matches a desire to, to build excellence or to continue excellence in those areas of research and high-tech manufacturing uh, will make a play. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, few plays are as bold as the California initiative, um, which has, uh, is in the process of emerging from its legal troubles and will shortly begin spending many hundreds of millions of dollars a year on this topic. Of course, California is a very, very big country, so a few hundred million dollars Same. sounds like a, a <laughs> country. Yeah, that it was, is a different country, yeah. seemingly. But <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Yes. Uh, so it's a very, very big state. Yes. And um, they may, you know, a hundred million dollars will go a lot less far in California than, say, $20 million would go in West Virginia. Right. Uh, in terms of impact on on individual components within within the state. But clearly they're making a huge commitment. Right. Uh, their commitment is being matched and competed with all over the country. There's probably 10 or 15 states now that have developed specific uh, regenerative medicine, particularly stem cell initiatives. And uh, it's interesting to see. I think it's very, very important as much as possible that the states focus on investments that that don't necessarily overlap what NIH can do. So when NIH invests its, whatever it is, $14 billion a year in extramural research, research outside of NIH itself, um, you know, there's not much point spending 10 or 20 million if NIH is mm -hmm. already spending 100 million if you're spending it on the same thing. Mm -hmm. So um, 
I think the states that will have the biggest impact, the biggest bang for their buck, will be the states that target uh, areas that perhaps are difficult to fund through a, a traditional mechanism. Are you referring to embryonic stem cells in particular? Well, clearly that's that? one. Yeah. Right? So, um, you know, uh, although it's not as if the federal government doesn't invest in embryonic stem cell research. You know, I know it's popular to say that, that they've prevented that kind of research, but I don't know how much they do spend, but it's certainly in the tens, twenties, thirty million dollars a year mm-hmm. have been spent on embryonic stem cell research. Um, but clearly... Uh, the strong play in California was directed towards embryonic stem cells. But there are other areas where the government has more trouble funding things. So, for instance, the, um, the link between uh, high-risk innovation and business mm-hmm. is a link where the government has struggled mightily with how to, how to fund that and how to, how to increase the chances that it will be successful. And they develop very creative programs like the Advanced Technology Program, which was so creative that they killed it this year. Um, and so it doesn't exist anymore. So that leaves a huge gap and a real opportunity for states to say, you know what, that's a program that actually worked. It actually delivered uh, remarkable advances. So, for instance, much of GE's medical imaging business, which is a massive business now with great benefit both to GE and to the country and to patients, um, much of that business began as a result of ATP, Advanced Technology Program funding, from the Department of Commerce. Uh, unfortunately, some people within government think that in some way that, that we shouldn't be helping companies. Um, right. Not quite sure why, because we help companies in all sorts of other ways. But We bail them out when they fail. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, but there is that thought. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a huge opportunity mm-hmm. for states. Um, sure. to, to step into that void. To help a, a product go from that sort of discovery phase, moving off the Absolutely. lab bench through regulatory and whatnot. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's really for high-risk research mm-hmm. that would lead to products, but the, re- the research is such high risk I see. that the company alone would not take that risk. I see. Nor the federal it's government, not, obviously. Well, now not the federal government. Yeah. The ATP program was hugely successful over more than a decade. It's just this year that... The, they killed it. I see. Well, um, with this area, Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh region, being so strong in biomedical research in general, are there programs like that 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 help us take our, not necessarily high-risk research, but help us take um, discoveries from the lab bench to the market? Well, I think that certainly the understanding of the need for those programs is increasing. And... um, uh, and, and I certainly hope that many of those kinds of programs will emerge in, in the future, and there's a very good reason for them to do so. Okay. Um, and since we were discussing states like California making a run on the embryonic stem cell opportunity, let's talk a little bit about those versus adult stem cells, which, again, I think this region is a real powerhouse in, partly because Pennsylvania has been restrictive in some ways on research in embryonic stem cells, um, but there are other reasons why, too, so let's talk about that. Adult stem cells, what about them? <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice small question. Uh, What's uh, the big deal? <laughs> well, I, you know what, I, I, I believe that we shouldn't be advocating for cells. We mm-hmm. should be advocating for patients. So again, the whatever works. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't care whether it's an embryonic stem cell, an adult stem cell, whatever works. Uh, what works today in research 
is is understanding the basic biology of how cells uh, change from one form to another, how they differentiate. Uh, clearly, embryonic stem cells have a huge role to play in helping us understand that whole process, the whole way that the body uh, communicates with itself. Mm -hmm. uh, adult stem cells are important as well in, mm -hmm. in that. So basic research on both kinds of cells is important. The idea that we will be able to optimize and understand how to use adult cells without an understanding of what happens in embryonic cells is perhaps a little naive. The, mm -hmm. the two are intimately linked. One mm -hmm. gives rise to the other. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, but on, on the issue of non-basic research and clinical uh, delivery, the fact is, is that it's a little early for embryonic stem cells. Uh, many people believe they have great promise, but, but it's promise. Uh, fully differentiated mature cells and adult cells are already being used in patients. Mm -hmm. So we certainly in, in Pittsburgh and at McGowan don't believe that we uh, should take some stand on principle and say, well, we're not going to work with those cells that could help patients today because we'd like to help patients in 10 years or 5 years' time. You know, we would like to use whatever tool is available to us today to help patients and innovate on ways to help patients tomorrow. So it does turn out that uh, using adult cells and adult stem cells looks like an effective way to help patients today, and, and therefore we're very engaged in that. Mm -hmm. And then there's those elements that make it a bit simpler um, that I'm sure our listeners are already aware of. Um, the ethical considerations are not quite so dire, um, et cetera. The, the fact that we're all walking around with our own handy supply of them doesn't hurt. Yeah, but um, I, I, that, that would imply that, that one might be better than the other. I see. And, and I really don't think anybody knows that yet. I, I really don't. You know, there's never been a comparative, either basic science or, or, or develop, you know, a developmental project which which just compares head-to-head -head the efficacy of these different kinds of cells. I th my own belief is that different cells from different populations will work in different diseases. Mm -hmm. this, why on earth would we expect that, for instance, an adult stem cell would work for everything that we want to do? It, it, it's, it's silly. So it's almost the um, notion of a pharmaceutical yeah. that has a specific action yeah. and a specific target. Yeah, you would uh, never... it's a cell you, rather yeah, than a you drug. You would never presume to say that... Um, that you know, because I don't like nitrogen, I'm going to only make pharmaceuticals from carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and sulfur. Um, I mean, and, and then just because I don't like nitrogen, I'm going to say that the, the combination of the others is better. It, it would be stupid. Mm -hmm. um, so I think with cells, it's going to be the same story. Different cells will work for different diseases. Mm -hmm. uh, the important thing is that they work. Mm -hmm. Speaking of working, um, let's talk a little bit about the professional society that um, represents so many people in regenerative medicine. Termes, what about it? Why is it such a big deal as we, <laughs> as we insured stem cells with? Well, uh, the, the International Society, the Tissue Engineering and Regenerative Medicine International Society, I think is a big deal because it's international. Mm -hmm. um, and it represents another example of the clustering of a field. So it was formed by the combination of many much smaller societies, uh, probably the largest of which only had a couple of hundred members. 
Uh, it's now a society. I just received an update. I, uh, until the end of the year, serve as the president of the society, and uh, Jons Hilburn from Sweden will be its next president. Um, I just received an update yesterday that, that the number of members is now 2,100, and uh, it is a society now with many members, uh, with real critical mass, and with that level of critical mass, it gives the field the ability to continue to find itself and uh, develop, uh, again, its own ethos uh, more effectively. Uh, when there were 10 or 15 individual societies all over the world that didn't necessarily effectively communicate or, or work with each other, it was harder to do that. So the society, what, what it's done is created three continental chapters, a North American chapter, a European chapter, and an Asia-Pacific chapter. Each of those chapters has one major meeting per year, uh, and they've all agreed to, to that concept and, and not to have multiple large meetings per year. And then, excitingly, once every three years, the whole group will just meet once on mm -hmm. one continent. So I, I think it's, uh, it's just a very good example of people in the field recognizing that if they stayed fragmented, uh, they would be less effective than if they managed to find a way to unite. When you say effective, I can imagine this is an opportunity for people to talk to each other, but doesn't it also give them an opportunity to decide how they're going to influence the thought leaders back in their own regulatory bodies yes. and legislatures yeah. and yeah. what Yeah, it's, it's very broad. I mean, it's, it's things like that. Uh, it's things like uh, the, the society is very interested in the development of a patient registry uh, that, uh, that will contain information about all clinical trials going on all over the world in particular wow. subfields. So, uh, and that, that would help in uh, you know, speeding development of safe and effective products. So, uh, yeah, there are many ways that, that people coming together under one umbrella uh, provides protection from the elements. And with that, I think we're out of time. Thanks so much for coming back to update us on the field, and we'll hope to see you again soon, Thank or you. hear you again soon, I should say. Thank you, and congratulations to you on your, on your year anniversary of What's a Wonderful Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Leah. For more information about Dr. Russell and the McGowan Institute, sponsor of this podcast, see the links on our website at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And don't forget to join us for our next podcast on the latest from the field of regenerative medicine, coming to you two weeks from now. If you have ideas for future podcasts, or you'd just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. We hope you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And please join us again in a few weeks. 